0: Well, would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask God to attend to our time of study? Father, we thank you again for all that you have accomplished and all that you will accomplish with us this day. We know you have ordained this day perfectly for our care and for your glory, and so we want to honor you through that, Lord. Take us now in your hand and guide us as we open your word together. Help us to understand and therefore to apply what you have here for us in your word that we might Indeed, be an honor and a glory to your name and a testimony of the gospel to those around us. All because of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, you'll notice in your bulletin, I'm sure you noticed when the email went out, that we're kind of take a slight detour this morning from the book of Luke, as we have been studying for the last several weeks. Because it's been increasingly upon my heart over the past year, and particularly really over the last several months, as we notice, at least in our country and really globally, the cataclysmic shift in society and the evangelical church as it relates to justice. Justice. We hear a lot about justice today and definitions of justice and what is justice. It seems That injustice is running rampant in the world, and therefore, there's a lot of people talking about justice. It certainly is being defined by the cultural forces that are at work in the world, uh, and whatever they decide it to be. In fact, those with the loudest voices, those with the greatest crowds, if you will, are defining justice by actually carrying out injustice upon all who might disagree with their definition of justice. And it's even infiltrated, unfortunately, the church. And the true Christian needs to be prepared for the onslaught. You and I as Christians, you and I who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior need to be ready for the onslaught of injustice as they say in our vernacular, it is coming to a gathering place near you. None of us are immune to it, and therefore we better be ready for it. And as shepherd here in this church, as one of those who brings the truth of the Word of God to us on a week-by-week basis, I want us to get a biblical perspective again on it. We are not hearing things we haven't heard before, we are not being reminded of things we do not know about, but oftentimes we need a fresh reminder of these things. And there's no better place then to turn in our Bibles than to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. As I I began to read this week in my preparations for today, I was doing some reading of history as it relates to the timing of when Peter wrote to the Christians in the area in which he is writing. And I thought it might be a good reminder for us to just start there as we begin our study this morning. If you're not there, you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, since that's where we're going to spend our time both today and next Lord's Day. But I want to start by reminding us of some history, because biblical historians tell us that 1957 or so years ago, in the year AD 64, the emperor Nero was ruling in the city of Rome. And on July 19th of that year, a fire broke out near the place where public gatherings took place in Rome. The place was known as Circus Maximus. I'm sure you've heard that term. It was known for that because the place where they did all these gladiator issues and all those kinds of things that were popular in the nation and rulership of Rome But the fire broke out near there because the city was designed with very narrow streets in ancient Rome, and it was constructed mostly of wood. And so the buildings ignited very quickly, as you could well imagine. The fire spread rather, rather rapidly, and it burned in the city for three days. And it consumed a great amount of the buildings in ancient Rome. And those who were living in Rome at the time believed that it was Nero that set the fire. Why? Because Nero had an unquenchable personal drive to have a city built after his liking. And at the time, in Rome, Rome was not after his liking, even though he was the ruler in Roman society. And so rumors began to spread that during the fire that he had given orders to Soldiers to stop anyone who might try to douse the flames. Well, consequently, after the fire had burned out, Nero was under pretty heavy public suspicion. And the city was, in fact, rebuilt according to the plans of Nero. And instead of wood, they used stone. But for years after, the finger of suspicion still pointed directly at Nero. The destruction of the city had devastated the Roman people. The economy was in a shambles. The resentment was enormous. And so Nero, needing to divert attention away from himself, like all politicians do, he needed to use a scapegoat. And so Nero began to point the finger and blame unjustly at the Christian. Why the Christians? Because they were, as one author said, they were the unpopular, quote, haters of the human race, unquote. They were disliked for their stand against immorality. They were disliked for their stand against the idolatry of the day in which they lived. And those who publicly confessed their Christianity were quickly sentenced to death. Their executions became the newest form of popular entertainment. In fact, Nero would open the gardens of the palace and light the walkways and the paths for his gatherings by those who were on fire. According to the historian Tec- Tecticus, who lived during the time, he said some of the Christians were crucified. Some were sewn into animal skins and then hunted down by ravenous dogs. Some were covered with tar and then set fire to serve as living torches when night fell upon Nero's parties. Well, the initial hatred of Christians eventually turned into fixed policy. It became law. It became the policy of the land. And under the regimes of succeeding emperors that followed Nero, the persecution for Christians went on for years to come. In fact, H.B. Workman in his book, Persecution in the Early Church, says this, quote, for 200 years from Nero on, the leaders among the Christians were branded as anarchists and virtual atheists, And they were hated accordingly. To become a Christian meant the great renunciation, the joining of a despised and persecuted sect, the swimming against the tide of popular prejudice, the coming under the ban of the empire, the possibility at any moment of imprisonment and death under most fearful forms. The mere profession of Christianity was itself a crime. You couldn't even say you were a Christian. Not publicly. To say, I'm a Christian, he said, was almost a plea for the rack, the blazing shirt of pitch upon your body, the lion, the panther, or in the case of maidens, an infamy worse than death itself. Unquote. Why do I mention all of that? Because at least by way of comparison today, It isn't all that difficult to live the Christian life, is it? I mean, if you profess to know Jesus Christ in our country, you're not arrested. In fact, it isn't difficult at all to claim Christianity when justice is righteously being served. But what if we are treated with actual injustice? How do we then live? How can we live when injustice is taking place? Because most of us here, as we sit here this morning, we have been blessed in some fashion, in some measure, by prosperity. We're even here this morning, we are encouraged to come together and to worship one another and to fellowship together, secure in a country which at least currently grants us religious quote-unquote freedom. Even today, we find it relatively easy to maintain some at least visible degree of spiritual integrity. It's rather easy to be a Christian even outwardly in our world, or at least in this country. But what would we do if all of those things suddenly were taken away? What if our religious freedom was taken from us by law? By law. By a law that the government puts upon us, or that the God that we serve allows over us. What happens if our relative prosperity is threatened? Certainly that is happening to some today as they take a stand on issues of conscience in their own heart and issues of personally held preferences that they have, certainly their economic prosperity is being threatened. How do we live? Would our spiritual integrity remain intact if those things take place? What would you and I do? I mean, think about it. We don't often think about this, but what would we do if we were openly openly and publicly ridiculed for our faith in Christ and then persecution and even the threat of death became real? How are we going to respond to that kind of injustice upon us because we're Christians? Because we name the name of Christ? Some of us may think that these are idealistic questions. I don't believe that at all. Because we have no guarantee that our situation will always be untroubled. We have no guarantee of that at all. And we see every day within our world and within this very country in which we live that the door of quote-unquote acceptance toward your Christianity is narrowing very rapidly. Very rapidly. In fact, there are those even today in our world, not close from even, not far from this country, who are indeed suffering jail time and sometimes even dying in their faith and for their faith. And so each of us who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, each of us who, who want to live as God has asked us to live because we should be living that way as Christians, as Him as our Savior, we need to know how to deal with the injustice. We need to know how to think through that, what is inevitably happening in this world and will happen to us as part of this world. And Peter, I believe, instructs us how to live in spite of and in light of an unjust world. Peter tells us how we can live in spite of the world being unjust and in light of the world being unjust. We can sum up his teaching under three headings three headings dependent steadfastness, dependent steadfastness, dependent worthiness, and dependent trustfulness. Dependent steadfastness, dependent worthiness, and dependent trustfulness. We're only going to cover the first one today. We'll get to the next two next week. But we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Notice what Peter says Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if, as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to the faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter's not mincing words. Peter is preparing the Christians to whom he is writing in Asia Minor for the coming persecution, right? What most historians believe to be the time of Nero's reign. Peter is writing just prior to that, if the history is accurate in the timeline. And Peter wants them to know the good news that will help them in bad times, The good news that will help them in bad times. And so Peter lists three attitudes of the mind, three attitudes and outflowing of the heart, which are able, which should characterize our lives as we are called upon by God to suffer unjustly for our faith. The first attitude is what I've entitled dependent steadfastness. Dependent steadfastness. it's It's really encompasses the the flow of what Peter is saying here in verses twelve through fourteen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. So if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is the attitude of dependent steadfastness. The attitude and therefore then the action, how it's carried out of steadfastness, is essential for us if we're going to have victory against injustice put upon us in a hostile world steadfastness means simply this resoluteness resoluteness or or the persistence and dedication to continue Persistence and dedication to continue. In other words, the determination to remain. That's steadfastness. This, beloved, is crucial if and when we are in the midst of and looking down the barrel of impending injustice because of our faith. It's crucial. If we are not resolute in the truth. if we are not determined to remain, if we are not set in our dedication and determination to remain faithful, when some kind of injustice comes our way, we'll be easily tempted to respond with the opposite attitude and the opposite action, and that simply is infidelity and betrayal. (coughs) I'm sure All of us can recall times when we need, in the past, we have a need to remain steadfast. Someone is challenging us. Someone is coming up against us because we are Christians. We had a need to stand fast. Some testing was coming our way. A challenge into our life. And rather than stand strong in faith during that testing time, we responded with infidelity. Maybe... Even through our silence, we denied even knowing Christ. Maybe someone was challenging our Christianity and we were in a group and we just sat there and said, Look, don't look at me, don't notice me, I'm not here. I love the fact that Peter's writing this because Peter knew that. Peter knew what that felt like. Peter Peter did that himself. Peter's speaking from his own personal experience. Peter's own personal experience of failure to stand when he should have stood, to remain faithful in the moment. He doesn't want any of us to fail like that. He he knows that we can have victory in this area. He knows that we can stand fast, that we can continually remain when we remind ourselves to live under the three truths that he's giving us for dependent steadfastness. There's three truths that he gives us here so that we would remain steadfast. Notice what he says. First, you can't get very far into this passage in verse 12 without just stopping and being riveted by the understanding of what he's saying. No, he says, first of all, know that you are beloved. That's the first thing. That's the first thing. How do we remain steadfast in times of injustice? Well, the first thing is don't forget that you are beloved. You're beloved. Verse 12, he just starts there, beloved, right? It's so simple that we forget it so often. I, I wonder sometimes if we truly realize that God loves us with an undying love. an unfading love, a love that does not change based upon circumstance. Even when unjust things are happening to us, God is loving us to the max. Knowing that we are loved by other Christians, that's that's great. I, I I love that encouragement in my own life, and my own heart, knowing that other Christians are around me and they love me, and it's encouraging in times of trouble. But nothing encourages me more than living in light of the never-ending love of God in the very place on which my trouble is coming from. God loves me. In other words, what's happening to me is not because God doesn't love me. It's not coming upon my life because in some way God has forgotten to love me. No, I am beloved. The Bible tells us that God is love. The world throws that on our face. The world tries to say, oh, if God's love, then why does God allow these things to happen? God only does what is right. Why? Because He is God. He cannot do anything that would be unrighteous. And for those to whom He, he loves, He always does what is right. He only does and only allows what is best for His children mark that down, write that down, put it in a, on a card, tie it around your ankle, wherever you can see it every day, no matter what is happening to me this day, does not diminish the fact that God is doing and allowing what is best for me out of His love. Do we believe that, truly? Do we believe that? In other words, when circumstances of life present a a different picture, when when the circumstances of life seem to be saying something different, when, as Peter put it at the beginning of chapter 4, when the fiery trial that we're in doesn't seem to be what we'd want, doesn't suggest to our trembling spirit, hey, this is the love of God, rather we're tempted to run and hide and think God has forgotten me. The place where victory begins is knowing that we are truly beloved by the Father who is in heaven. No matter no matter the hatred that God has allowed through an unjust system to be upon us. No matter. God is still loving us with an everlasting love. That is simply to say, we can be assured, beloved, that what John 13 verse 1 says is right. That Christ, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them to the end. Jesus loves us to the end. Can somebody please tell me when the end of eternity is? There is none, right? He loves us forever. Injustice can tempt us, beloved, to doubt God's love. Just think about it. If someone like Nero came and took our loved ones, or even came and took us and covered us in pitch in order to use us as a human candle at their unjust, ungodly party, would we doubt the love of God for us? Would we desire, like Job's wife said to him, just curse God and die? Would we believe the lie of Satan? Give in to the vile words of the enemy. That if God really loved us, this wouldn't be happening to us. God really loved you. That wouldn't be happening. Well, listen. We will if we if we forget we're beloved we'll certainly go that direction we'll certainly quickly run there in fact we'll live there if we forget we're beloved you will if you if you doubt the love of god for you but if you resolutely steadfastly know that god's love is perfect that god's love always operates for his glory and for the best of his children always without fail then you can be steadfast and immovable even in the face of injustice. So remain dependently steadfast first of all by never forgetting God's love for you. Then he gives a second attitude, action, second way to remain dependently steadfast in times of injustice is this. Maintain A realistic view of your relationship to this world's system. Maintain a realistic view of your relationship to this world's system. Notice what he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised. In other words, stop living in this man-made pipe dream that life as a Christian in this world is going to be troubleless. Stop living in this man-made hope and desire for that reality. It does not happen. That is not the Christian life in the world. We know that our true home is in heaven. It is not here. Peter reminded these believers that he's writing to of that very fact back in chapter 2. He said, you are aliens and strangers in this world. I urge you. And he, and he began in verse 11 of that chapter with the same word. Beloved. Listen, you know you're loved. You know this is going on. You know it's trouble. So I urge you as that knowing that you're alien and strangers in this world, that you don't do what the world does. Abstain from those fleshly lusts. Refrain from that because they wage war against your very soul. They want you. They want you to deny the truth that you know to be true. Christian life Is not going to be some primrose path for you and I to blissfully skip our way into glory. In other words, it shouldn't shock us when life is filled with pain. It should not shock us when difficulty and even injustice happens. In fact, just the opposite should take place in our thoughts. Why? Because we are prepared for it And we expect it to take place. Don't be surprised. We've been warned, by the way, as Christians, we've been warned by our Savior, the one we follow. We've been warned by Jesus Christ. And we know that these things will take place in this world. We know that. And therefore, because Jesus has told us, and because Jesus endured the very same, we can mentally and therefore spiritually prepare ourselves to meet those challenges. We don't have to just say, I can't do it. We all know from infancy of the church in the first century, in fact, all the way down through the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, even to our present day, Christians True believers have lived with the bitter hatred and persecution of themselves at the hands of other godless people. It's just reality. It's a reality we don't like to look at. It's a reality we don't like to think about. It's a reality we'd like to have somewhere else. But the reality is, it's not to be a surprise when it comes to us, it's for your testing, Peter says. It's not strange. It's not out of the ordinary. It isn't something that God doesn't know about. Throughout the ages, the wicked have mercilessly tortured followers of Jesus Christ. They have in the past. They continue to take lives of even brothers and sisters we know in Christ today. They have never been able, however, to put an end to the testimony of the gospel. Why? Because believers have remained steadfast. They have remained steadfast in faith, because they know that they are truly beloved by the Father, and they are not surprised that they are hated. And then, Paul gives a or Peter gives a third principle. It's this: if we're going to remain steadfast in our faith in in unjust times. Persecution comes, and we have to learn to rejoice because of it. <laughs> that seems rather oxymoronic, doesn't it? We have to learn to rejoice because of it. Notice what he says, but to the degree, verse 13, that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Peter exhorts us to not be surprised that persecution will come and then he tells us that we should rejoice when it does come. In fact, he's just not saying that we are to give some flippant shout of joy and thanks because the difficulty it's come our way, and we do it with some mocking words. Okay, thanks, Lord. Thanks for this. That's all Peter's saying. Peter is saying that we are to be visibly glad. <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you what, I'm such a failure at this. We're to be visibly glad when God allows and brings upon my life testing which comes through injustice. I'm not to be surprised of it. I'm to remember I'm beloved. And in fact, I'm to be visibly glad that the Lord is allowing this to take place. Raise your hand if that's you. (laughs) You say, wait a minute, Pastor. What you're saying isn't really realistic. It's not realistic at all. I can see that I that I'm loved by God. Okay, I get that. I understand that. I, I can see. I understand that I should expect suffering to take place in life. I, I get that. I live in a world that that hates Christ. Okay, I understand that. I have an intellectual understanding. It's it, it's in me. Okay, I'm I'm buying all that. But what I hear you saying is that I need to be happy about it. Rejoice! Come on, you can't be serious. I am. Because God is serious. It's easy for us, listen, it's easy for us to quote these words when there's no fire burning under our feet. It's easy us to quote those words when things are going well. Prosperity's just happening. Life's going on. God's just not allowing any testing for the moment in our life. But how do you rejoice when the fire's breaking out among you? How can we as believers practically carry that out? As the martyrs saw their families marched past them, as, they were, as the martyrs were tied to the stake that was going to be lit, how possibly could they be rejoicing? Let me give us three quick thoughts for cultivating that joy in our, in the midst of our suffering. Just three quick thoughts. One, recognize that we are fellow partakers with Christ. Recognize we're fellow partakers with Christ. Peter says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Do You see, it's not, it's not that, hey, this is awesome, we get to suffer, but this is what Christ went through. This is exactly the same things that Christ went through. When we suffer for our faith, we have something in common with Christ our Lord. When we suffer for our faith, that's what he's saying. Jesus Christ endured earthly sufferings at the hands of sinners. Why? Because He was without sin. Right, They hated him. He is perfect. He he did nothing wrong. Every time they saw him was a challenge to their sinfulness. I mean, everything he said, everything he did, the way he lived, it was all a challenge to sinfulness. They hated him. It was always a spotlight on their life. And in the same way, when we suffer at the hands of a sinful world, we should count it a privilege to share in the same kind of sufferings that he experienced if we suffer like he did because of our faith. We're living righteously for Christ. Don't you love the final words of Stephen in the book of Acts when he was suffering for his faith at the hands of the angry mob in Acts chapter 7. And by the way, Saul was standing right there giving hearty approval. We'll hear a little bit about that tonight. What did Stephen say? Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Stephen was rejoicing in the suffering that God was allowing in his life by simply saying, Lord, as you have had compassion on me, have compassion on them. Listen, only those who count it a privilege to suffer with Christ could utter those kind of words. We may suffer a pain of severe intensity at the hands of sinful men. We may may cry out as... The psalmist does in Psalm 116 and verse 3 saying, The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of hell have come upon me. But when we are in the midst of that kind of circumstance, we think of Christ. We think of the pains He endured from every side. And when we do, then we can rejoice knowing that we have fellowship with His sufferings. And our faith then realizes in that moment that the ground for our joy is not the suffering itself. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. Christ didn't even like that. He said in the garden, Father, is there some other way do I have to go through all this. Is there some other way? But not my will, but yours be done. So, in the midst of the suffering, we don't find joy in the suffering itself. We find joy in our fellowship with Christ in the suffering. The fellowship we have with Christ that those sufferings bring to us. Secondly, The second thought for cultivating this unfathomable, it seems, joy that we are to have is to realize that we have a future hope. We have a future hope. Notice what Peter says, but to the degree, verse 13, that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation there's realizing we have a future hope right there right our future hope is tied completely and permanently to the culmination of all things when Christ comes again when Christ is fully revealed in all of his glory when our glorious lord ascends when he when he ascended to heaven when he went up he received his rightful glory at the right hand of the Father. Just as he prayed in John 17, Father, glorify thy Son with the glory that he had with you before all of this began. Christ rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, ascended to that glory, but that glory has not been revealed to all men to see it. Jesus gives us a glimpse into what it will be like when He returns. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24 for a minute. Just to kind of give us a glimpse of this. Fascinating. Matthew 24. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It's interesting that he would say that there. They just come through the tribulation. There should have been a whole lot of mourning in the tribulation, and many people didn't mourn at all, still thumbed their fist at God, would not bow the knee to God. And yet after that, the sign of the Son of Man will appear to the sky, the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and what? Great glory." All men will see His glory. It's coming. There is coming a day. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds and from the ends of the sky to the other. There will be this great day when Jesus comes, and His glory will be revealed, and all people everywhere who do not know Christ, they will mourn it will be a glorious return this is the glory that peter's talking about so also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation what was joy because of our privilege to suffer in the same way Christ suffered, will become a superabounding joy when Christ returns. That's what Peter's saying. One author said it this way. He said, the real sense of this, and what Peter's saying is this, quote, keep on being happy because when you do so, someday you will be ecstatic. Unquote. I love that. Keep being happy regardless of what goes on. Rejoice in the Lord. Continue to be rejoicing. Show this outwardness of joy for suffering for your faith because one day you're going to be ecstatic. Uh, if we're faithful to Christ by sharing in his sufferings now, we will be super with joy when he returns. And I believe, I believe the greater we suffer here, the greater our joy will be in glory. You say, why do you say that, Pastor? Because of what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy because behold, your reward is great in heaven for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. See? Jesus says, listen, suffering here, listen, that only is paving the path. It's only paving the path to great exaltation. Last thought about cultivating joy when injustice takes place because of your faith is this. You can rejoice Because suffering reassures us that we are indeed the children of God. Reassures us. God uses it. Reassuring us, verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I love that. The right thoughts and the right attitude that are mingled with hope reassures us that we are indeed the children of God. Let me say that again. The right attitude and the right thoughts mingle with the hope of Christ's return and that reassures us that we are the children of God. The reproach of the world therefore is a blessing. Why? Because it proves our faith. proves our faith. One commentator said it this way The refiner's fire need not test the stone or the clay. It is the gold that he puts in the fire. And that which is true gold comes forth as pure gold. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? God's not testing the stone, He's not testing the, fi- the rock. No, He's testing what is gold. He puts the gold in the fire, and what comes forth is pure gold. So the joy that we can have in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of injustices because of our faith, is not subjective. It isn't a subjective thing. It's not a feeling that's based on circumstance. It's not a feeling. It's not something, well, gosh, I, 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 this just doesn't feel right. It's not based upon subjective things that change at the whim of whatever's happening in the moment. No, it's a joy that's produced by the objective presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We know we're the children of God, therefore we rejoice in that. We rejoice in whatever God brings, and that guarantees that we are the children of God, and then because of that we can remain steadfast when things happen when the window is closing when the when the hallway is shrinking when when pressure is on because you're a christian when it seems to be overwhelming you can stand you can remain steadfast you can remain steadfast with joy in it because you know you're loved by god you know he only does what is right because You can find joy in that because you know you're suffering with Christ just like Christ did. And you have hope. You have hope. It's assurance of your faith. The only way that you and I can face any of that at the hands of evil men and endure it even to the point of death is through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The only way. Beloved, injustice is going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to come at us down through the ages. It has happened, it's going to happen again. It's unavoidable. And many who were professing Christians fell by the wayside because they doubted that God loved them. They doubted that what was happening was true and right for a Christian. And yet those that remained steadfast down through the ages, that steadfastness so impressed, so impressed, on the hearts of others that many have come to know the Lord through that. Many have come to know the Lord because a suffering Christian remains steadfast. We sang it earlier, not because I said this is the hymn we should sing earlier, but because this is what the Lord does. He orchestrates our time together and we sang this song earlier. And I just want to read the words again to us because maybe you didn't realize when you were singing it, what they were saying. Whatever my God ordains is right. He is holy. His holy will abides. I will be still, whatever He does, and follow where He guides. He is my God. Though dark my road, He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him, I leave it all. He holds me that I shall not fall. Those great words. Great words. Whatever my God does is right. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. I trust for what we've heard this morning. The reminders to us, Lord, it is so easy to get our minds and our hearts off in the wrong direction, beginning to doubt you and doubt what you're doing and thinking through the situation as if somehow this can be changed circumstantially by what's going on. Lord, we certainly don't want to thwart anything or even stand against anything that you might be accomplishing. So help us rest there. Help us rest in these truths. Let us not think it's strange that injustice is happening in this world as much and as infuriating as it seems to be at times. Lord, we know that you're right in all things. So use us to that end for your glory. Help us in those moments to shout with joy, knowing that we're suffering with Christ. And we will one day have superabounding joy when he returns. In his precious name we pray. Amen.